I was thinking about this today. Um, I'm not sure how this will work for an introduction, but nonetheless, I'm going to try. But I was thinking about one of the blessings of my wife and I kind of starting over by adopting a, an infant who's now a toddler, JJ. One of the blessings of that is I get to play with all of his toys and watch all of his movies. And right now, JJ's very much into Legos. And yesterday, my wife and I did something we never would have done with our older kids, but, you know, whatever, live and learn. We spoiled him yesterday. We, we, we bought him this Lego set, and he's all about helicopters, right? And so it's like three different Lego things. And, and I don't know the last time you put Legos together, but you almost have to have a degree. It's amazing. Like, uh, and I don't have one. So I, I open these bags, and I'm like pouring out all these little tiny, tiny pieces. And JJ's like, helicopter. I'm like, go play with something else while daddy works. You know, but I'm so grateful for they, they, they give great instruction manuals. Kudos to Legos. Like furniture companies should contact Lego Incorporation and collaborate on how to do instructions to build something because Lego's got it. And, you know, like one little step at a time. But I guess the reason I was thinking about that is because it was very overwhelming seeing all the little pieces and parts and everything. But there was a specific plan in mind that the end result would be a very cool police helicopter, okay? And that's what happened because I got mad skills at building Legos. Anyway, and then I'm like, don't play with it. This is daddy's toy. Anyway, um, I guess, you know, maybe a loose connection here is that, you know, I was thinking about how Moses, you know, we're in this interesting section of Exodus where Moses is up on Mount Sinai again, and in 40 days and 40 nights, when it's all said and done, he's going to come down off of the mountain with the actual stone Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. But sometimes what we forget is he also came down with the plans, the detailed instructions to build this, this very elaborate structure that we call the what? The tabernacle. And that's the section from chapter 25 to 31. We're dealing with the instructions or the plan for this, this structure called uh, the tabernacle. And, and, and the reason I guess I brought up the Legos is because as you read through 25 and 26 and so on and so forth, it can seem like a bunch of loose pieces that don't make sense. But trust me, it's all coming together to create a very intricate and wonderful thing. When it's all said and done, you're going to see the picture. Amen? Speaking of pictures, and I don't apologize for being repetitive because repetition is the mother of learning. And so what I want to do is I want to show you a picture of the tabernacle that we started talking about last week. Just throw maybe the first one up there, Isaiah, if you don't mind. This is an artist's rendition of what's called the tabernacle. And what the tabernacle was, was basically a big elaborate tent that God's presence or something of God's presence would dwell in. And if you remember the purpose in chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, God said, I want you to build this structure, this tabernacle, this sanctuary, this holy place, that I might dwell in the midst of my people. And we talked about last week how God's desire has always been, whether you're talking about the Garden of Eden, walking in the cool of the day, the tabernacle, or in Revelation where he says, you know, I will be their God and they will be my people. God is always always listen, long for relationship with his people. Amen? And so he didn't want to, in a sense, stay on the mountain. He's like, no, I want to be right smack dab in the middle of my people so as to be the center of their lives, but also to have relationship with them. And so we started talking about this really cool structure called the tabernacle. 
And uh, just a just quicker refresher course, go to that next one. I can't remember exactly what it looks like, but yeah, that's a little more detailed. By the way, this is a football field up here, so that gives you a little bit of like, um, you know, like, what do you call it? What's the word I'm looking for? Perspective. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to blind you with this pointer. Um, so this is kind of, we talked about this, you know, here's the outer courts, we'll get to that. Here's the altar, we'll talk about that. The brazen laver, we'll talk about that. But then the, there's the tabernacle itself, this, this, basically a big tent with two chambers. First chamber was called the holy of, oh, excuse me, the holy place. I was testing you, good job. Uh, the second chamber is called the what? The Holy of Holies. And so inside these chambers, there was various articles of furniture, which we started talking about. We, we looked at last week the Ark of the Covenant and um, the Mercy Seat. We're going to talk about the table of showbread or the, the, the table of the bread of presence. We'll talk about that. And the uh, golden lampstand. And there's all other stuff. But that's just, again, to keep it, I want to keep it in front of you so you can kind of have a visual as we go through this. So you, you can kill that one. Thanks, Isaiah. Um, the lest we, you know, the construction of all this stuff, the materials, the design, um, all of the intricacies uh, and all the detail is fascinating to me. I love it. But lest we lose the bigger picture, um, I don't intend on getting into every little nook and cranny because for our purposes, what we want to pull away from this is the bigger picture of the tabernacle. In fact, the tabernacle, as we mentioned last week, was this physical, historical, real tent that they set up. But the tabernacle itself, guys, is the, one of, if not the greatest, Old Testament types of Jesus Christ. Everything about the tabernacle, everything about the furnishings, everything that, about the priesthood that went along with the tabernacle is one great big spiritual object lesson for us to point us to Jesus. Amen? In fact, we, we talked about last week in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. The word dwell there literally in the Greek means tabernacled among us. And we talked about all these wonderful parallels. In fact, I wanted to mention something I forgot and it's too good to pass up. Last week we were talking about how the Ark of the Covenant represented Jesus and holding the Ten Commandments. But on top of the Ark of the Covenant was what was called the mercy seat, another way of Remembering the mercy seat is the atonement lid. It was basically a solid gold lid with these two elaborate angels, one on one end and the other on the other end. And it was above that mercy seat that God says, I'll meet with you. And it was once a year that the priest would come in and sprinkle blood from a sacrifice for the people on the mercy seat for forgiveness. And the, the mercy seat was covering what? The Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. And guys, all of this was picturing the fact that Christ alone was able to fulfill the commandments. We don't meet with God on the basis of the law. We meet with God on the basis of mercy, specifically the fact that Jesus Christ died in our place, paid for our failures, and that's how we can have fellowship and intimacy with God. Amen? One of the things that I forgot to mention that I thought was so cool, um, somebody, I forget, maybe Brian or Pastor Steve, somebody brought it up last week. Uh, it was in my notes, and I forgot to mention it. Do you guys remember when Mary Magdalene, when Jesus raised from the dead, she went into the tomb and she saw what? Two angels, one at one end and the other at the other. 
And they were saying, who are you seeking? Christ, he's not here, he's risen. But what a beautiful picture because just like the Ark of the Covenant, there was two angels, right? And just like in that slab where Jesus was laying, there was an angel at the head and an angel at the foot. And I wonder, I can't help but think if there were blood stain on the slab where the blood of Jesus had seeped through the, the, wind, you know, the, the binding stuff that was on him and gone onto the concrete or to the dirt. What a picture of the mercy seat itself. All that to say is it all points to Jesus. Well, tonight we're going to look at the, the uh, two more furnishings, two more um, articles that were in uh, the holy place, that first chamber. And the first one is, you might have a, a little note above 20, verse 23 where it says the table for bread or the table of showbread. Anybody's have that, the table of showbread? We'll talk about why it says that in a second. But let's just jump in and read this a little bit, guys, and then we'll make some applications. He says, you shall make a table of acacia wood. It shall be two cubits in its length and a cubit in breadth and a cubit and a half its height. And so this next thing, it basically wants them to build a little table. It's not a very big table. If you do the math, by the way, you probably have a note. A cubit is about 18 inches. It's like the tip of your middle finger to your elbow, roughly about 18 inches. So this table would be like three feet by a foot and a half by about two feet, a little over two feet. Made out of acacia wood, covered in solid gold. Verse 24 says, oh, I got ahead of myself there, didn't I? You shall overlay it with pure gold and listen, make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim uh, around it, a hand breadth wide and and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners uh, as of, of its legs. And so um, three feet, foot and a half by about two and three inches. And then there's about a three-inch rim around it. And then it had these little loops at the bottom that poles went through. Um, it says in verse 27, uh, Close to the frame of the rings shall lie as the holders for the poles to carry the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make uh, its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons, which is like a jar, um, and its bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. So let's pause there. So that's pretty self-explanatory. This little, pretty basic little table, actually, except for the fact that it's covered with pure gold. And then it's got these rings on the bottom, and the poles will go through that. Why is that? Because this whole elaborate tent was able to be broken down, hoisted up onto the shoulders of the Levites, and carried throughout their entire wilderness wandering. It was portable. So this little table, that's, that's what it's for. But here's the deal. Check it, look at verse 30. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me, Now, ESV says regularly, but it literally means continually. The bread of the presence. You guys, you know, what's interesting about the table of showbread or the table, I like to call it the table of the bread of the presence. It's kind of a mouthful, but what's interesting about this little article of furniture that we're talking about right now is it's not so much the table that's significant, it's what the table is holding, It's holding the bread of the presence. Now, to understand what the bread of the presence is, you have to kind of look at a supplementary uh, text so you can flip over or write down in your notes Luke chapter, excuse me, Leviticus chapter 24, verse 5. Listen to this. 
You shall, make, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an epaph shall be in one loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of gold, or pure gold, before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that they may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as food offering to the Lord. Verse 8. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly or continually. It is for the people of Israel as a covenant forever. Verse 9. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat, in, eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion of the Lord's food offering a perpetual due. Okay, that was a mouthful. Bottom line is this. Build this little table, cover it with gold, and here's what it's for. That table is going to sit, if you were to walk into the holy place on your right or on the uh, north side of the tabernacle of the holy place, as you went in there, there'd be this little table, and on top of it would be 12 loaves of bread made out of fine flour. And if you do the measurements, they would have been actually fairly significantly big loaves stacked on each other, 12 of them, sprinkled with frankincense. And every Sabbath, so once a week, Aaron at this time, the high priest would go in or the priest later on would go in and they would change out. They'd take the old bread, they'd put new bread and they would eat. They'd they'd feed that bread to their, their family and they would eat that bread. It was holy. Does that make sense so far? So that was supposed to happen constantly. Wherever they were camped, there was a 12 loaves um, and frankincense on top. It was there for the priest to eat, but then they'd have to refresh it every week. So what's the point of all this? Here's the clue. Go back to Exodus chapter 25 for a second. I like verse 30 because it says this. You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me. The word presence there, I don't know if you have this in your notes. It actually is literally the word face. The bread of the face. And he says, you're going to set that bread before me. So in essence, guys, here's what was happening. Each one of those little 12 loaves of bread, how many were there? 12. How many tribes were there in Israel? 12. And the idea was, is that they were always set before the presence of the Lord. And the idea was, is that it was communicating that God has always got his people on his mind. He's always thinking of his people. He's always going to provide for their needs. And then when the priests would come in and eat the food, it was like God sharing that meal with them. And that was communicating, look, I want fellowship with my people. The priests represented the people. And so he's like, man, I'm going to let you guys eat that. And it's communicating that I want to have this fellowship, this communion with you. Amen? So kind of a cool symbolism and all of that. But here's for us, guys. This is the beautiful thing. And it's, I don't think it's hard for us to, to look at some of the applications. But I want to give you about four things about the table of showbread. Number one, just like each one of those loaves represented God's people and communicated that God was always mindful of his people, I just want to say this. I don't, we don't need to camp on it for a long time. I think it's a reminder for us that God is always mindful of us. He's always thinking about us. Amen? He's always aware of where you're at in life, what you're doing, what you're thinking. I don't know when the last time 
you read Psalm 139, but maybe make that a little homework assignment before you go to bed tonight. Psalm 139 talks about how God knows what we are thinking before we say it. He knows when we sit down. He knows when we get up. It says his thoughts are towards us like the sand of the sea. The point is, it's like he never, ever stops thinking about you. Amen? That's very comforting to me. And also very frightening that he knows everything about me, and yet he still loves me. Another thing that I remember is this, is just like that, that eating of the bread spoke of communion with God, God desires communion with us, amen? And just like it had to be refreshed every week, you know what? God wants fresh communion with us. We can't live on last week's or even yesterday's fellowship with God. We need to renew that communion every single day, Amen? Not live on, you know, sometimes people say, oh man, back in the 70s, I was on fire for the Lord. That was cool. That was back in the 70s. How about the 80s and 90s and 2000s? How about today? To quote the famous theologian, what have you done for me lately? Just kidding. Number three. These are all just like priming the pump for the actual real application, but I love this. Listen, guys. The bread ultimately speaks of what? speaks of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the what? The bread of life. I am the bread of life. And that came, by the way, after one of the greatest miracles he ever did, feeding 5,000 men and not including women and children. And after that miracle was done, he got on a boat and he went back to Capernaum and the crowd followed him around and he got off the boat and boom, there they were again. And they're like, hey, you know, show us a sign that you're really the one. And hey, I got an idea. Moses gave us manna. How about breakfast? That's basically what they were saying. And he said, don't labor for the meat that perishes, but the food that lasted for eternal life. And he goes on to say, and I am the bread. Bread is synonymous with food in the Bible. I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, whoever believes in me will never hunger, will never thirst. Amen? So we know that that picture is there. Jesus painted that one for us. He's the bread of life. And here's the interesting thing is that table presented the bread before God's presence. Something to just think about for a second. When Jesus came and died for our sins, we marvel, as we should, that it was that the, the, the enormity of his love for us. Oh my gosh, I can't believe how much God loves me. He gave himself for me. That is true, true, absolutely true. But there's another aspect to Jesus' sacrifice. It wasn't just for us. It was out of obedience to the Father, wasn't it? Jesus was presenting himself. He said, not my will, but your will be done. And so before, if you would, before the priests ate of the bread, it was presented to God. Before we were able to put our faith in Christ, Jesus first ultimately was giving himself in obedience to the Father. Lastly, and this is the big kahuna so, um, application. Jesus is the bread of life. I want us to think about that for a second. Listen. If you go back, and I'm not going to do it now, if you go back and read John chapter 6, when Jesus says he's the bread of life, and and I'll turn there, you don't have to, but you can if you want. In, in, In chapter 6, verse 35, let me read this again slowly. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Later on in verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. And he goes on to talk about how life is in him. Guys, listen, there's two ways we need to apply this, Jesus being the bread of life. Number one, 
as it relates to salvation. That's what he was talking about. The eating of the bread was synonymous with believing in him. He actually uses the word, whoever be- he said, I'm the bread of life, whoever believes in me. So to eat of the bread of life, how, how do I eat you, Jesus? How do I eat you if you're the bread of life? How do I eat? The idea is you put your faith in me. You put your trust in me. And what Jesus was declaring is I alone, not me, but Jesus was saying, I alone am the bread of life. There's no other way to have life except through believing in me. Amen? No other religion, no other, you know, whatever you want to believe in, all of that will leave you starving to death. I am the only one that when you put your faith in me, you will have life, eternal life. And remember, eternal life is not something that starts when we die. Eternal life is something that begins the moment I receive Jesus as my Savior. I have life and it just continues on. Amen? Here's the thing. I was just thinking about this today because... It's, it's such an emphatic statement. I, I think sometimes we hear it so much we forget the punch that's behind it. He was saying, no matter what else you eat, it will kill you. You'll die in it. I'm the only one. When you believe in me, that's how you get life. That's exclusive, isn't it? And so many people want to turn Jesus into a supplement of their life instead of the main thing. Does that make sense? And, and just kind of lump him in with, oh yeah, Jesus. And we'll just lump him in with all the other self-help methods and beliefs and, you know, be strong and do this and believe in Jesus and do yoga and do that. And then and, and just another way to kind of make your life whole. No. No. It's Jesus and only Jesus that can save you. He's not lumping in. He's not a supplement. He is the life or death thing that you need and I need to ingest. Does that make sense? Him alone. John says later on in 1 John chapter 5, he says, whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And I, 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 I just don't like the vibe that's definitely in the world right now, and it's not necessarily bad in the world, but it's crept into the church where we've kind of turned Christianity into another self-help program but guys we need to remember that jesus did not come to make good people better he came to make dead people alive amen he didn't come to to like you know kind of clean us up a little bit no we were dead and lost and going to hell and jesus came to rescue us i came across this great quote by a guy named ab simpson in my studies i just want to read it to you he says to the one who has felt the crushing sense of sin And then the sweetness of assured pardon and peace by the Spirit's voice. There's no need to explain Jesus' statement, I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If any man eat this bread, shall live forever. I love that. He says, you know, you don't even really need to explain that to somebody who has felt the crushing condemnation of sin and then tasted the sweetness of pardon and salvation through Jesus Christ. Amen? Guys, he is the bread of life. And if you've believed in him, you have eternal life right now. Amen. If you have not believed in him, you don't. Well, that seems so exclusive. I knew Christianity was so exclusive. Christianity is very exclusive. It's included, it, it can include anyone, but it's an exclusive message because truth is exclusive by nature. And Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. He's the bread of life. 
But not only is he the bread of life in relation to salvation, but I also believe that Jesus is the bread of life. Listen, he's the bread of life as it relates to satisfaction. Now listen, what did he say? John 6, 35, whoever believes in me will never hunger. What's the opposite of never hungering? Always hungering. What's the opposite of content? Discontent. And guys, this is where I see so many of us, and I'm including myself in that, so many of us in the church, we have Jesus as the bread of life for our salvation from the past and our future hope, but in our present situation, there is a lack of satisfaction, and we are just as discontent as the world sometimes because we're not looking to Jesus to be the bread that satisfies our souls. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, I get the world. In the world, we're looking for something to feed our souls, and there's nothing innately wrong with any of the things I may mention, whether it's a hobby, whether it's a family, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a a position in a job, whether it's finances, whether it's whatever. Nothing is innately wrong with those things, but it becomes wrong when we try to satisfy the hunger of our soul with those things. And then you see it. I was talking to Pastor Steve about this yesterday. We were surfing yesterday, and we were just commenting on how, man, if you don't have Jesus and all you live for is surfing, and you don't get a good day, or somebody drops in on you, or it's too crowded at the spot, your whole day shot, and life sucks. Why? Because you're living for that, and you're trying to get something from that that it cannot give you. But when Jesus is your soulic satisfaction and the bread of life every day, you're so full of him, you put all those other things, whether it's a hobby like surfing or a spouse or a a, a desire to have children or all those things that are good, they stay in their proper place and you stop trying to get from them something they can't deliver on. That's what an idol does. And I see too many of us, and I've been there and I'm sometimes still there from time to time, it's, it's kind of like what I do every night at like around 10 o'clock. I have some dairy-free ice cream maybe or some sorbet. And that's good, but I'm still hungry. So I pop popcorn, and I pop popcorn like every night on the stove, old school kind, right? Just like the oil, the seeds, shake it up. But it takes a while, so while I'm waiting for that to pop, I grab the chips, and I eat some hummus with the chips while the popcorn's popping. That's done. Go to the back to the popcorn, eat that. And then after I'm done with the popcorn, I'm just still not satisfied. So I go and stand in front of the fridge like something magical is going to appear. And there's just, I just can't put my finger on what I'm hungry for. That's what people in the world are doing. And unfortunately, guys, that's what so many of us as Christians are doing. We're standing there with the proverbial refrigerator door open, trying to find something to eat to satisfy our soul. And all the while, Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life where you will find satisfaction and contentment and fullness and and purpose. When are we going to learn? Guys, I honestly believe this is something that is caught, not taught. And honestly, if This is my true opinion, so you can chuck it or you can keep it. I just think we don't believe this to be true. I think that's the issue. I think the issue is we really don't believe that Jesus is all we need. And the reason I say that is because our behavior backs it up. My behavior backs that up. 
If I was just married, if I was just single, if I just had kids, if I just didn't have kids, if I just did this, if I did that, that, and then I would be satisfied. No, you won't. If you can't be content and satisfied with Jesus, then nothing will satisfy you, and you'll walk around in a proverbial fresh, or, or a perennial, no, that's not the word either, per, a, a constant, perpetual, Mitch to the rescue, welcome back, bro. A perpetual frustration. Too many Christians are perpetually frustrated because we don't really believe that Jesus is all we need. It sounds good in church, but on Monday morning, Thursday morning, we just don't believe it. And how does that work? It works like any other way of eating. You eat every day. You eat two times a day. You eat three times a day. And the same thing with the Lord. We got to go to the bread of life every morning, every night, every afternoon, every chance we get to crack open the word of God and spend time with our living Savior and just let him. And I'll tell you guys, to the degree that we will just fill our souls with Jesus will be to the degree that we are satisfied and fulfilled in life and we will stop looking to other things to do for us what they can never do in the first place. Are you, guys, are you with me on this? Jesus is not just our salvation from past, present. He's our or past and future. He's our satisfaction in the present. That's what I was trying to say. R rhetorically, is Jesus your satisfaction? Or is this just good theology that doesn't make it out of the church? Well, that's all well and good, but you don't know my circumstances. I don't, and I don't mean to make light of them, and I'm not making light of them. But I'm telling you, Jesus really is all that we need. I think it was Corey Ten Boom that said, we'll never know that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. Amen? Challenging, but true. I literally, I just want to, I just feel like praising God right now in my heart. I'm just so thankful for Jesus. My life would be so empty without him. He's so satisfying to my soul, and I, I'm so frustrated at myself when I lose sight of that. Isn't he good? Amen. Well, there's more, and I will do this a little quicker in theory. Verse 31. So that's the golden lamp, or the, the, the table of showbread. Actually, can you show that real quick? Because I forgot to show what it might look like. Something like that. Isaiah drew that. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't draw that. Well, let's go to the next thing. You can, you can turn that one off. Let's go to the next one. It says, now you shall make a lampstand. The Hebrew word is menorah, a pure gold. And the lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Keep that in mind. Its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes. That's the ESV's version. It's, it's basically that word. We're going to hit it a lot. The word calyx basically just means like an ornamental bud or bulb. So uh, ornamental bulb and its flowers shall be of one piece with it, verse 32. And there shall be six branches going out from its sides, three branches uh, of, on the lampstand out of one side of it and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. And three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx or uh, ornamental bud and a flower uh, on one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, verse 34, and on the lampstand itself, uh, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers. In verse 35, 
and a calyx of one piece uh, with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. And you guys can use your imagination on that a little bit. Verse 36. Uh, Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it. The whole of it is a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. And you shall make seven lamps for it. And the lamp shall be set up so that to give light. This is key. Look at, if you lost me, come back to verse 37. You shall make seven lamps and the lamp shall be set so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and its trays shall be of pure gold. Uh, It shall be made with these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern of them, which is being shown to you on this mountain. How many of you guys have ever seen a candelabra or a menorah? Um, This was, go ahead and show this picture real quick. So so again, this is an artist's rendition. Something like that. Um, You can turn it off. Um, This was, you know, if you, again, were to walk into the holy place, on your right would be the table of showbread. On your left would be the only light source. That was its purpose. It was the only light source in the enclosed tabernacle. And this was by far the most ornate, like, beautiful piece at all these little, you know, like, almond blossom decorations. And basically, it was a candlestick uh, with three on each side, making up seven with lamps on top of them. Did you guys catch all that? So that's what it did. And, and it was made out of pure gold. Did you guys catch that? By the way, I did a little math for you. One talent of pure gold was to make all this stuff. Do you know how much a talent is? Anybody got a footnote? 75 pounds of gold. So I did a little math. 75 pounds of gold, there's 16 ounces per pound. Gold, according to the uh, estimate at about 10 o'clock this morning, is $1,422.80 an ounce. There's 1,200 ounces. So this would be about $1,707,360 worth of gold. $1.7 million in today's standards worth of gold. That's crazy. We had to cut to the chase for time's sake, but the candelabra again, or the menorah, or the the lampstand, its purpose was to, to, to provide light, but it also was a reminder of God's continual presence. For us and our application, it's not a difficult one because what does the Bible tell us over and over again? You go to the, to the book of John, chapter 1, and it says this. In John, chapter 1, verse 4, it says, In him was life, and his life was the light of men. John 1, 9 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And then Jesus said of himself in John 8, verse 12, I and the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You guys, what does the menorah speak of? Or I keep saying menorah, whatever the lampstand speak of. Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. Amen? And by the way, did you notice that that menorah, that lampstand was of one piece of what kind of gold? Hammered, beaten gold. They didn't melt it and mold it. It was hammered into its form then it was able to give light and not just hammered but also it was poured in with crushed olive oil and guys that's exactly how jesus if you would became the light of the world he had to be crushed and hammered on our behalf and he is the light of the world because he died for our sins and raised from the dead amen 
Did you know that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified and he was weeping and tears and blood coming down his face and he's just grappling with his father saying if there's any other way but not my will your will be done and he was feeling the crushing weight of calvary the name gethsemane actually means olive press and that's what happened when jesus was being pressed he was the hammered and the pressed one filled with oil oil is always in the bible a picture of the holy spirit love it the light of the world just out of curiosity, how many of you guys, if you've been around church for very long, you've heard, how many of you guys have heard that phrase before? Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. How many of you guys have repeated it? How many of you guys have taught Bible studies about it? Some of us. You know, just dawn on me, I, I, I've used that term, I believe it's true, the light of the world. Yeah, Jesus is the light of the world, I give an amen to that, heck yeah. But you know, I don't know if I've ever really thought about what that means deeply. And I just, just consider a couple of things. What does light do, you guys? Number one, I'll think for you. Um, number one, it gives life. Right or wrong? If there's no light, there's no life. You know, think back to when you're in kindergarten or whatever and you have your science project and you put a little, you put a little seed in the dirt and you're, you're taught what? This thing needs some, some, some components to grow, right? It needs nutrients, earth. It needs water, and it needs what? Light. For the photosynthesis and all this stuff that takes place for that thing to grow. Probably showing my ignorance right now, how much I don't know about biology. But anyways, the point is, is that no light, no life. And guys, again, the application, Jesus is the light of the world. When Jesus comes into a life, a person's life, there is life. That, that sounded redundant. Let me rephrase that. Until Jesus comes into somebody's life, there's no life. There's death. Do you understand that you can be alive, but you can be dead? Do you understand that Jesus, when it says he's the light of life, he's the light of the world, what he's declaring is he's the one that can bring light and life into the dead souls of this world, the dark souls of this world? Do you remember when you invited Jesus Christ into your life and all of a sudden the light of life came into you and there was growth and there was life? I can't help but think that that's why the almond buds, almond blossoms were the decoration because when springtime happens in that region of the world, that's the first thing that blossoms to new life, almond buds. Guys, Jesus is the light of life. Without Jesus, there is no life. We already talked about that, but how true, Amen. And guys, not only does light bring life, but light brings illumination. Now, I know that sounds simple, but think about that for a second. Light brings illumination. If there's no light, you don't see clearly. You're, you're groping around in the darkness. You can't see things for what they are. It reminds me when I'm a little kid, and I, I wake up in the middle of the night, and I see a monster in my room, and I turn on the light. Oh, it's not a monster. It's my gym bag with a baseball bat and dirty underwear hanging off the top. I look, but it looked like a monster, you know, in the dark. But you turn on the light and you see it for what it is. Guys, this whole world is wanting some kind of enlightenment. And you know when that happens? When you allow Jesus Christ to come into your life. That's why the testimony of the guy in John chapter 9, he says, I was blind, but now I see. Guys, that's our testimony. We might not have been physically blind. We were spiritually blind. We were spiritually in the dark. And it's not till Jesus comes into your life that your eyes are opened and you see things for what they are. Amen? 
Do you know that like before you knew Jesus, you thought Christians were idiots? You thought they were simpletons. You thought they were uneducated, superstitious people that used God as a crutch. And then you got saved and you're like, oh, now I see. See what? The truth. The truth about what? About who God is and about who I am. And I'm a sinner. And I see the truth about what's going on in the world and and why the world. Do you understand how much light we have because of Jesus? We understand life. We understand origin. We understand why there's death, why there's pain, why there's suffering. We understand what's coming in the future. There is illumination when Jesus comes into a life. Amen? Chases the darkness away. And I was thinking about this too. You know, when the light is out, you see color. This is a little minor point. This is for myself, but... When Jesus comes into our life, I don't know about you, but it's like the whole world is more colorful. You know what I mean? Life becomes life. Like, like you see life for what it is, and it's beautiful. I mean, you can appreciate life and beauty and the beach and everything without Jesus, but when you have Jesus, it's like times 10. Amen? Because you see and you understand, like, oh, I'm not going to find fulfillment in becoming one with the energy of the ocean or whatever. I look at the ocean and go, I, my father made that. That's his fingerprints all over that. And he just, oh, you just see the world for what it is. It's beautiful. There's enlightenment in our souls. Amen? Jesus is the light of the world, you guys. And, and, and I want to end, I'll end on this, because I, 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 it was one of these weird moments when I was studying this week. And this just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, I, I literally started tearing up right where I was studying at this coffee shop. I don't want a trilogy any, mention any names, but... Um, and I literally had to get up and start walking around. I'm geeking out and I'm freaking out because I'm thinking to myself, this is what the world, this is what everybody wants. This is what everybody's longing for. Everybody's looking for enlightenment. Everybody's looking, they're in the dark and, and we've got it. It's Jesus. He's the one, everybody wants to experience real life. It's Jesus. He's the light of life. Everybody wants to understand why the world's this way and understand why I'm this way. Well, you can't until you have Jesus. He enlightens us. He illuminates. He gives us truth. And I'm geeking out. I'm like, this is, we have the best news ever. And I, then I, that, that joy went to sorrow in a moment because I, was, I thought about this verse that Jesus said, and I'll close with this. We'll try to bring it back up. But Jesus says this in John chapter 3. We know verse 16, but in verse 17 it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but he sent him into the world that he might be, it might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Listen to verse 19. This is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Jesus came and he died and he raised from the dead and it's out there and people know about it, but the reality is people love darkness. And a lot of people don't want the light of Jesus. They'll they'll try every other quote-unquote light, but they don't want the light of Jesus because it exposes that there's right and wrong and people like their wrong. We liked our wrong, didn't we? We want to live in darkness. When you lift up a rock and the bugs squirt, they go everywhere. They're trying to find some more darkness. Get out of the light's killing me. You start talking, you can talk about God all day long and force and power and energy. You talk about Jesus and people start running for the rocks. Don't don't, don't, don't judge me, bro. (laughs) 
And, and not everybody, but here, here's my encouragement. Whether people receive Jesus as the light of life or not, that is still our message, amen? Guys, we, I want to encourage you, we have, we know what every soul on this island is longing for because they want life and they want enlightenment and they want, to, they want to know that it's, and it's Jesus. Now, they may not want to accept that, but my encouragement to us as we go, because what did Jesus say? I'm the light of the world. But then he also said in Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. Uh, we're not the source of light. We're reflecting the light because we have Jesus in us. But guys, as we go from here, we carry, if you would, Jesus with us, the light of the world. And we get to go shine the light and love of Jesus to everyone we're working with tomorrow or going to school with this fall. We just get to take the message of Jesus is the light of the world into this dark, dark island. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Father, we come before you tonight and we thank you. I hope I didn't make it more muddy. It's actually simple and I, I have a, the gift of complication, but Father, I thank you, Jesus. How, Lord, you are the bread of life and you are the light of the world. And we can just meditate on that all night. Guys, right now, I, I am increasingly of the opinion that if we just do Bible studies and pack up and go and never actually allow it to uh, hit our lives, we're just missing so much. And so just for a moment, if the Holy Spirit was speaking to your heart tonight, and I really felt like during that application of Jesus being our satisfaction was the word for a lot of us, that we need to look to him to be the bread of life. And if you would just respond in your heart and say, that's me. I'm looking to everything else and, and I'm thinking something else or someone else is going to be what I need. It's just, I just need more Jesus. If you need to tell him that, would you just do that right now? Let's just pray. I'll just give you a moment. You and the Lord, go for it. Just talk to him. Confess that you've looked to other things instead of him or ask him to be your all in all or whatever you need to say. Jesus, you are the bread of life. You give life. You saved us, and you're our satisfaction. And I pray right now, Lord, that we would not in theory, not in doctrine, but in reality look to you to be our satisfaction. That we eat from you, as it were, every morning, every night. Lord, I pray that we would look to you to be the light of the world. You are. You've brought life into us. You've enlightened our eyes. And Lord, help us to go out as the light of the world. And Lord, just like the, the wicks needed to be trimmed and the oil needed to be refilled, Lord, refill us with oil and trim anything that needs to happen that we might shine for you, Lord, and be the light of the world at work and at school and at, at recreation, whatever we're doing. Because, Lord, you are what this dark world longs for and they don't even know it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.